0: welcome to the ramp church podcast we are so honored that you've joined us today and we pray that you will be encouraged and inspired by this week's message if you'd like to know more about ramp church manchester or would like to partner with us in giving visit us over on our website ramp.church/mcr, or find us on social media now let's head straight into this week's message Now, uh, um, on, on to my word, which is what I'm really excited for you about. We're in the middle of a teaching chapter where we're looking at th- several things. But one of the things is the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Have you, have you heard of the Great Commission? Okay, this is a time where Jesus is kind of ending his, his life on earth. And he is explaining to his followers, here's what I want you to be up to when I leave. Like, this is what I want you to fill your time with. When I'm away, this is what I want you to burn with, like passion, this is what I want you to be passionate about This is your new vocation And so we're going to get more into the Great Commission But what I want to talk about today is really kind of what's underneath or behind the Great Commission Why are we even doing, why do we even do this church stuff? Like what is all this about? Why do we live a Christian life? All of that, so what's underneath all of that? Um, And I'm, I'm excited about what that looks like because for there to be a mission There has to be a mission giver right? For there to be a church, there has, to be a, uh, there has to be a founder of that church, and that is Jesus. So we're, we're going we're gonna to dive b- uh, uh, beneath that. But I want to read this verse from you, and then I want us to pray it together from Ephesians 3, verses 16 through 19. Ephesians chapter 3. Now, the book of Ephesians was written by a dude named Paul, early church leader. And so let me read it to you, and then we're going to read it again, but we're going to pray it over, over each other. So here's Ephesians 3, I pray that from God's glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. How many know that when you have inner strength, can I just interrupt the the text here? Sorry. But when you have inner strength, outer weakness kind of loses its priority in your life. You're hearing me inner strength pushes you through outer difficulty. We all know we can go through the same circumstances as someone else, and that someone else may be internally stronger than us. And it's like the way that that situation affects them, it seems like it's not even affecting them sometimes. I think, I think through some of my, my own story with my family and brokenness in, in, in that. And I look at my siblings and I go, man, the way this affected us is like completely different. You know, is there something wrong with what, inner strength? That's, that's what Paul's talking about here. He, he says, I pray, this is Paul's prayer for his church, that from God's glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then, once you find that strength, Christ will make his home in your hearts. As you trust in him. Your roots will keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand. As all God's people should. How wide. How long. How high. And how deep. His love is. But it doesn't just stop at understanding. Paul prays this. May you experience. The love. Of God. May you experience the love of God, which is in Christ. Though it's too great to understand fully, then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. I don't know about you, but I want the fullness of life and power. Okay, uh, I, I, sign me up for that list. Now, now, here's what I want us to do. This is kind of a new thing, a uh, little exercise here. I want us to pray this, I'll read this together, and what we're going to do is we're going to pray it over each other because that's what Paul's doing. Paul's praying it over his church. Can we pray it over our church? Can we do that? So you're just praying over everybody else in the room. And so if we can go back to that first slide of Ephesians 3. And let's just pray this together. I pray. Come on, let's read it together. I pray that from God's glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Amen. Isn't that incredible? Well, here's something you can't say today. You can't say nobody prayed for me today. So you have been prayed for, and uh, I can't think of a better prayer than that. So um, before I get into the love of God, that's what I'm going to talk about today. Talk about God's love. And I think it's going to be surprising to you because one of my goals is to rescue God's love out of this, like, Hollywood, kind of romantic, like, um, love that's, like, focused on affection. And I want to pull it into something much bigger, much stronger, much more powerful. That has, it, it, it actually has the ability to, to, to change our lives, if we can see it for what it is. Um, but before I get there, I, I want to say, I, I wanna say a, a, a few principles that are going to kind of set this up. The title of my message is this. When God introduces himself, when God introduces himself, and I'm going to read a text where God actually introduces himself. If you wondered who he is, I'm about to tell you a bit about that. But here's the first thing I want to tell you. You currently... Have an image of God Like you right now You have an image of God You have an idea of who you think he is What you think he's like And that, that image Is based on a few things um, your, your image of God first Is shaped by your personality now I know like, we, we like to think we're in the modern age, it's 2022, we're really sophisticated, we're really rational I mean, we have all these big universities, we... I, I, no, I make my belief decisions based on logic Pure rationale is the way I guide my life But in actuality, our beliefs about God are based on something a whole lot more shifting than that A whole lot more changing And the first thing is they're based on our personality um, Scott McKnight's a New Testament scholar, and he teaches a he teaches a uh, in his New Testament course that he teaches. University students come in. He does like a pre-university course exam uh, test, and there are two parts to the test. The first part is you write down who you think you are, so your personality, your likes and dislikes, and then the second part is you write down who you think God is. And he says it's it's it never fails that those are almost identical. <laughs> in student after student because we lean towards the parts of God this image of God that we like so it has to do with our personality I think about people who are like really into the justice heart of God and I, I'm into the justice heart of God. I think God is a God of justice. He wants to see wrong things made right. He sees injustice in the world, and he's moving in people's hearts to help bring solutions to that. But oftentimes when they're, oh, they're so just like everything they hear from God's about justice. If you get behind that, uh, they're often a black and white kind of a person. It's like that's, that's how they see the world. Or I know some of my preacher friends who love the, the moving of God's spirit in services. Spontaneity. When you, when you find out about their personality, they're just spontaneous people. They, you know what I mean? They don't make plans. They, so I love the moving of the Holy Spirit. Our idea of God is often based on our own personality. So the second thing, my current image of God is shaped by my people. You think it's rational? You think you're pure, purely logic? It's shaped by my personality, but it's also shaped by my people. Um, I, if, if you really want to get a wake-up call about who you are, just just have kids because when I see my kids do the things that I don't like about me <laughs> and I didn't teach them that, I realize how much I'm shaping them without even knowing it, right? You're shaped by your people. It's why sometimes as a pastor, I have people come up to me and go, you know, I'm, when you talk about God as father, like that's hard for me because my own relationship with my father was so, was so bad. That even when you use that word, I have a hard time thinking of God that way. What is that? That's, the reason you have a hard time thinking about the Father nature of God is because that's your own experience. That's your people. Your people have shaped the way you see God. Um, the third reason is your current image of God is not just shaped by your personality, your people. It's shaped by your past. So your own story. So I've, I've walked with people through, of course, you know, incredible, incredibly joy-filled seasons of life and incredibly hard seasons of life. I've seen people pray for people who are on their deathbed, and, and the person lose their life. They, 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 they don't recover. But then I've seen exactly the opposite. Impossible situations turned around by the power of God. I don't understand it. I can't really explain it. But oftentimes, those experiences are going to shape our perspective on, on God, my past. So if I prayed for somebody and they haven't gotten healed, well, all of a sudden, my conclusion is God is not a God who heals. Do you see how? Then it's uh, the circumstances really is what's formed my my opinion on God. It's 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 my it's my personality, my people, my past, and then lastly, my current image of God is shaped by my practices. Your practices shape what you believe. I, I can prove it to you. Um, I uh, just right down the road. There's another place of worship called Old Trafford, and they have a few more people than we have in this room when they meet. Um, to worship. But if you are not into football, but you started going every week to a football match, yeah, I mean, you could hate it. You could go every week, but you force yourself to start singing the songs and cheering when someone scores, hating the rivals. You are going to find yourself starting to love it. Why? Because what you practice shapes how you feel. This is why living in, living in a way that, that, that seems righteous or healthy is important for us. Not because God's he enamored with robots that live Christian ways and know Christian vocabulary words and can memorize Bible verses and you know can, can, can do all those christian things. But because he knows that when our lives are shaped according to the way he designed us to live, that it changes who we are. You hearing me? Your practices matter. What you do with your body matters. What you do, you're not disconnected from the results of what that does. So it's, it's it's your past, it's your personality, it's your people, your practices. So the first thing is you have a current image of God, who he is and what he's like. We all just, we're on the same starting point there. And that starting point, it must mean this. It must mean this next principle and that is this. Your current image of God includes both fact and fiction. There are things you believe about him that are spot on. They're probably only a portion of it because he's infinite. But they're spot on. They're, 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 I mean, they're bullseye. Well done. But there's things you and I both believe about him that are fiction. They're made up. You know, we came in today and we're, we're, we're even seeking to either prove that, disprove that, something about it. Because the things we believe, believe about God are both fact- and fiction. And, and, and this is, this is going to sting a little. You prepared? I'm preparing you. It stung for me first. So. How do you know um, if you're living um, in something that's not who God says he was? Let, let, let me just first say this. For the best of us in the room, here's what the Bible says about us. For the best of us in the room. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, 9. Now, our knowledge is partial and incomplete. But not only that, those of you who think, well, no, I hear from God. I see the whole picture. No, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. So you could be like, you have divine revelation. Like God himself showed him, he walked into my bedroom and said, here's who I am. That experience is only a part of who he is. You know the beautiful, can I just take a little detour right here? You know the beautiful thing about that? Wherever you're at in your walk with God, there's always more. There's always you could have been serving God longer than I've been alive, and there will be more to know in Him, more to experience, more to discover, more to find. This idea that church is boring—if um, God's in the middle, church isn't boring because there's always more of Him to know. Yeah. Are you with me? There's always more of Him to discover. There's always more of Him to find. Amen. So, how do we know if we're if we're living in this um, this personally kind of or culturally shaped version of God. I love what Tim Keller says. Here's what he says. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. You see, sometimes we we love ourselves and our own opinions to the point that we that we become godlike in our own eyes. If anything disagrees with me, if anything challenges my perspective, if anything, if anything makes me think different thoughts, it can't be God. Because God has got to be me on my best day. That's God. And everything that doesn't agree with me, can, can I tell you, if following Jesus is not about it, this, it's, it's not summated in, this, in a certain way to do relationships or a certain way to, to deal with your sex life or a certain way to deal with your money or a certain way to raise your kids or a certain way to have a career it's not summated in that it's, it's summated in who is Jesus and what am I going to do about who he is that's what it's summated in but at some point he's going to want to talk to you about all the other stuff does that make sense? He's going to want to talk to you about all stuff. And he doesn't care what BBC says about it. It's not like he's up there insecure. Oh my goodness, BBC did. They did another piece about religion. In church attendance, it's falling. He's not, he doesn't have personal security issues. He knows who he is, and the truth remains the truth, regardless of what you and I think about it. But, but if, if he never disagrees with us, then we may not be worshiping him. And I suggest that to you. And here's what you need to ask yourself right here. Does my God ever disagree with me or perhaps even offend me? Wow. Does my God ever ask me to change my perspective? If it's been a minute, you need to, you need to, you need to maybe take a second look. Have I actually invited him to challenge me? Or maybe even when you go to the word, when you go to scripture, you're not just looking for truth. You're just looking for affirmation of what you've already believed. The true God, the real one, is always going, he's always going to disagree with me on some points. That's the nature of it. Can we, can we, can we go there together? Can we agree on that? So I love this quote from, um, from A.W. Tozer from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. This is a fam- famous quote, but I want to I read it with you. Um, this is what he says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. I would argue that in the West, our, probably our current religion is politics and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. The most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret, this is, this is really neat, listen to this. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Let me summate that by, say, by saying this this idea right here. Your life is being shaped by your pursuit of your God. Your life is being shaped by your pursuit of your God. Don't you think it'd be worth making sure the right God is in that that seat? Your life, my life, is being shaped by our pursuit of our God. Number three, so if, if we have an image of God and that image includes both fact and fiction, then what, what what do we do about that? And 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 here's here's what I want to say about that. Your image of God can be rooted in Scripture. That's really where it needs. So what do we do? What do we do if there's fact and fiction? And, well, well, we come back to something that's to, that's been tested for centuries. It's got to be rooted in Scripture. And let me even add, for those of us who 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 just want to interpret this any old way we want to, it needs to be interpre- It needs to be rooted in Scripture and the way that that Christian tradition has done it for centuries, the Christian community. Otherwise, everything that I read in here is subject to my opinion, my cultural moment, my my ideas. But if if, if we immerse this book into the Christian community and what the Christian community has stewarded for years, not everything, it's gotten squirrely at times, right? But the baseline, we can trust that interpretation Uh, you know this is interesting because it it really offends our modern sensibilities because it suggests that the way to find truth is outside of myself that offends my modern sensibilities doesn't it because our the modern storyline is everything I need is in here have you watched a Disney movie recently This is like every Disney storyline, like I'm a princess, but I shouldn't be a princess. I should just be a normal person and live to do my life and like, but it's all these restrictions they're putting on me. I need to just be me, right? Like that is like, like, let it go, let it, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, like nobody can hold me back anymore because it's the truth on the inside. That's the truth that matters. It's every storyline, it's all around us. To the point that to live your truth is the greatest cultural value. To get in tune with your truth. The problem is, my truth changes like every other week. <laughs> it was just like my style in high school. One day I'm a punk rocker and the next day I'm a prep. I, I mean, what who are what are you doing? It's the same way. That's, that's, that's why inner truth changes that way. So then the only conclusion then is, well, we can't really know truth. If truth constantly changes, then we can't really know it, can we? Yeah. But that's, don't you think that's a little, like, a little bit cheap way to kind of get out of that question? It's not a courageous way to live, is it? And life demands that we approach it, that we posture ourselves courageously towards that we approach it, that we posture life. Willing to be wrong, but willing to stand for something. You hearing me? Willing to be wrong, but willing to stand for something. And we can't get to the end of it. Nobody ever got to the end of their life and going, man, I'm so thankful I stood for nothing. (laughs) I lived a convictionless life. It was beautiful. My, My life motto was whatever. Whatever happens, happens. However much money I have, I have. However my kids turn out, they turn out. No, nobody celebrates the life's lived that way. Why? Because something in us calls that there is something true and I must live for it. You hearing me? Yeah. And if it's going to be, if that truth is bigger than me, then it has to be rooted and sourced in something. And the Bible calls that something God. That's where it's rooted in source. and it sourced. And it's, it's eternal. It's eternal. It, it, was, it was around before you existed, and it'll be around after you're gone. After your bank accounts are in someone else's hands. After your career is being filled by somebody else. After all the stuff that's important to us now, it won't matter in the, in the least. What, 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 what's before and after that? It's God. God's before and after that. But Ecclesiastes tells us, Solomon says, that type of eternal reality, God's placed it into the hearts of every single person. And the reason why there's an ache on the inside of us that feels like I can't satisfy it with this world is because only eternity can satisfy that ache on the inside. That's it. And it can only be satisfied by seeing the God who is real. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Every generation... Each generation must interpret this book for themselves, but it can only be interpreted rightly when it's it's interpreted with every generation. You hearing me? That's the journey we're on. So now I wanna take you into the story of when God introduces himself, when God introduces himself. We're gonna read from Exodus chapter 34. If you're like, oh my goodness, I thought you were closing your message. (laughs) That was the intro, ladies and gents. But I promise the rest won't be as long as the intro. Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Can I just catch you up on, like, what's going on in the story? Or we can read it. We can just, like, start at Genesis 1 and then, like, read the... What's been going going on in the story is um, God made some promises to a man named Abraham. said, here's what I'm going to do in your life. And Abraham then has a bunch of kids. And then those kids end up in slavery eventually in the nation of Egypt. And 400 years of slavery, um, there were hundreds of thousands of people now in Egypt. And they, um, they as, as anything happens for over 400 years, that's their life. They're in slavery. They're, they're slaves. And God, God remembers the promise he made to their their forefather, and rescues them from slavery. And on their journey to their new home, um, God then decides to reveal himself to them. So this is God answering the question. Exodus 34 is God answering the question, so tell me a bit about yourself. (laughs) You ever do a job interview and that's how they open the job interview? Tell me a bit about yourself. You're like, ugh. You're like, well, I'm a hard worker. I'm never late. I, um, <laughs> like, what else can I say that's not really true, but you want to hear? You know? um, so it's like that question. So this is God. This is Israel out in the desert. And, and it's like God now, um, uh, they're asking God, tell me a bit about yourself. And this is, this is how God responds. So Moses is the dude who's talking with God at this moment, right? You tracking? Moses, God's people who's called Israel. Tell me a bit about yourself. Exodus 34, and let's start reading in verse 4. So Moses rose early in the morning, and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed his name, the name of, of the Lord, God proclaimed his name to... I mean, this is like early days. This is like they're introducing themselves to each other. Pretty cool moment, eh? Um, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. So now, notice the quotation marks. Now it's God speaking. This is what he says. Yahweh, Yahweh. That's his name. That's his revealed name. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love Say love And faithfulness Keeping steadfast love, say love For thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin But who will by no means clear the guilty He's a God of justice Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children And the children's children To the third and the fourth generation Moses quickly bowed his head Towards the earth and worshipped Moses was having an encounter with God And he said, Moses said If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord Please let the Lord go in the midst of us So he's he's taking this out of a personal thing uh, Of your people Okay, Go in the midst of us For it's a stiff-necked people They don't really want to listen to you, God (laughs) And pardon our iniquity and our sin And take us as your inheritance Please take us as your people You've rescued us, now take us as your people and isn't it interesting what God says about himself? He, he doesn't say anything about his knowledge, his wisdom, his surpassing power. He doesn't say the stuff that, that I learned in my introduction to theology class in university, all the omnis, omnipresent, right, omnipotent. Those are the things you learn in like a systematic theology course. Here's the attributes of God. What, why did, he uses some really strange characteristics. He doesn't give like his, his resume, well, you know, when there was nothing... I just spoke a word and like the world was created I'm that dude he he doesn't do this he eventually does it. but look what he says about himself when he chooses to introduce himself he says I'm merciful I'm gracious I am slow to anger who's thankful for that one I am abounding. I love how out of all the attributes he highlights, this is the one he highlights. I'm all these things, but look what I'm overflowing with. Maybe your version says that. Overflowing with steadfast love. What does it mean to overflow in something? I mean, it's like when you think about an athlete. Think about LeBron James. You look at LeBron James and that dude is overflowing in athletic ability, right? He is abounding in athletic, it's hard to look at him and see anything else but athletic ability, right? He works out and that happens to his body and the rest of us work out and that doesn't happen to our bodies, right? That's, he's abounding in athletic ability. God is saying, I am abounding in steadfast love. It is what's most evident about me. It's the only attribute in the list that he mentions twice. I'm abounding in steadfast love. Maybe your translation says loving kindness. Or faithful love. He is abounding in that. Now, I don't know what your idea of who God is. But this should challenge it. You tracking? Yeah. This should challenge This text is so important to Jewish thought. This is obviously the Jewish scriptures we're reading out of now, the Old Testament. That it is the most quoted scripture in the Bible, by the Bible. Does that make sense? So this scripture is quoted by other biblical writers more than any other scripture. Why? Because they're fascinated with this idea. They're fascinated with this revelation of who God is. And look at this. this I, I, I want to dive into one word. Can I dive into one word f- with you for, for a few minutes? It's the word steadfast love. The word steadfast love. And it's, it's actually the Hebrew word chesed. Can you say that? Hesed. Hey, I like that. Chesed. Hesed is used 246 times in the Old Testament. It's translated steadfast love, loyal love, covenant love, unfailing love, loving kindness. Kindness, love, favor, devotion, mercy. The linguistic scholar William Mounts calls the Hebrew word hesed one of the richest, most theologically insightful terms in the Old Testament. James Strong says it's one of the most important words in the the vocabulary of Old Testament theology and ethics. Let's... And it's interesting here, the reason it's so hard, there's so many words to translate it, is because there isn't an English equivalent. There's not an exact English word to translate this word love. So we've, we've got to open our minds to what, when God says he's loving, what does he mean? Let me, say, let me tell you this, it's way bigger than feeling warm, fuzzy feelings for us. He's not in heaven like, hmm, <sighs> I love them. They're awesome. I mean, it's, it's, that's not it. It's way, way more than that. Look, look, what, um, uh, look what Old Testament scholar Daniel Bloch says. He says, Hebrew hased cannot be translated with one English word. This is a covenant term wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, acts, not just feelings, acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. Hased is that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage that it might bring to the one who expresses it. This quality is expressed fundamentally in action rather than word or emotion. When God calls himself loving, he doesn't primarily mean an emotion. He primarily means an action. Something he does towards you Or for you. Chesed is an action before it's a word or a feeling. This is what Will Kynes says. Chesed is never merely an abstract feeling of goodwill, but always entails practical action. God is vastly superior to the Israelites. And yet through his covenant, his chesed, he binds himself to them eternally to do them good. Can I just summate this for you? God's said toward you, is not based on your own love or your own performance, but God's own character and his own covenant. Did you hear what I said? If if you really get that, it changes everything. When you realize you can't perform well enough to be more loved by him, or you can't perform bad enough to be less loved by him, everything changes. Everything changes. Have you ever encountered performance less love. I mean, I don't know about you, but generally the way I love is based on the way people love me. If you like me, I'll probably love you more. If you don't like me, I'll probably love you less. Aren't we thankful God's not like that? That's what hesed is. It's a disposition, it's an action towards love. Can can I just summate it like this? When God loves you, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. When God God chooses to love you, there's nothing you can do about it. Now, there's something we should do about it. That's next week's message. Stay tuned. (laughs) That's next week's message. But when God loves you, there's nothing you can do about it. Because he's chosen to covenant himself with his people. Now, the key is to be his people. That's the key. To find myself in Jesus... When I could live my own way, that's the story of Eden and Adam and Eve and the apple and all that stuff, right? It's it's changing my orientation. For god. I'm not going to be my own boss, my own lord, my own god. I'm going to change the way I orient to God. I'm going to see Him for who He really is. He is Master and Lord and Savior and Giver of all life. And when I change that orientation, I trust that Jesus came to do what I could not do, to live the life I could not live, to die the death that I cannot die, that I'm not willing to die. When I put my trust in that reality, all of a sudden there is nothing I can do to get outside of God's love. Nothing. Nothing. Here's what Romans, this is what Paul says in the book of Romans. Look at this, Romans chapter 5. God shows his love. Look how God shows. It's not just a feeling that he feels. He's demonstrated it. How? God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, that that word sinners, we don't get it in our our modern day vernacular because we think it means like going out and partying and getting drunk on Friday night, right? It means there's something in us that is an enemy to God in our hearts. We don't want to see him for who he really is and act like that is who he is. That's why we started this message where we started. When I was an enemy of God, when I didn't want to recognize him as God, Christ still came and died for me. He made the step towards me. (laughs) That's the reality of the gospel. I love this. Eugene Peterson, he words it like this. This is the way he expounds on this beautiful verse in Romans 5. Christ didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for this sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if, can you go to the next, the, the, the next slides for me? Even if we hadn't been so weak, next slide, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for and we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use to him whatsoever. You and I saying yes to him does nothing for him. It's not like he tells his other deity buddies. One more for me. One less for you. He chooses us because of his chesed. It is his character. It is his covenant with you. It is not based on what you do or what you don't do. The Christian life, the real Christian life, is lived from this place. It is, this is the difference, this is the difference. It's not lived to earn this. It's lived from the revelation that I already have this. Does that make sense? if, If you picture, let me give you this analogy. If you picture your most prized possession. Your most prized material possession. What is that? What is it? Just get that in your mind. Do you remember when you wanted it but didn't have it? Do you remember that? Now you have it. Okay. You would do just about anything to protect it, wouldn't you? It changes the way you live. That's how it is with the love of God. That's the difference. When we don't want it, or when we don't have it, but we want it, it consumes us. When we have it, and we know we can't lose it, it consumes us. We want to live from that place of knowing, I've been found by God, and I want to do something about it. Ben, can you come? when you know the love of God, and this is what I mean by know, I don't mean you, you know it like mentally, consciously. I mean it, it fills your soul's senses. I don't know, I don't, it's hard to describe. When it becomes real to you on the inside, you, you think about it all the time. It's like you can't see a movie without seeing it in the storyline, or you can't just go throughout your daily life without it becoming real to you it, cha- it, it changes you you know what it does it sets you free it sets you free from, from needing to prove that you're worth loving accomplishments opinions of other people success education material possessions all these things that we like that we're seeking, that we think that is the thing I'm seeking. No, you're actually seeking the thing behind that thing. (laughs) I want the feeling that I get when that person calls me their friend. I want the feeling that I get when I get to pull up to a stoplight and the emblem on the front of my car is better than the emblem on the car next to me. I want that feeling. Because you know the driving experience, they're not all that different, okay? (laughs) It's, I want that feeling. I want, I want that. You're seeking something from that. But when you've already got it, what happens in your life? When you already found it, when there is no success great enough that it could add to the feelings of acceptance you're already feeling, what happens? I'll tell you what happens. Freedom. Freedom happens. I'm not disconnected in a weird, in, in, in a weird like eastern sort of a, I'm disconnected from reality and I'm living in an ideal, idealized world. That's not what I mean. I mean you're disconnected from the effects of acceptance or not being accepted by that thing or that person or that group. Are you hearing me? Why? Because I have already been accepted by God. You're set free from the fear of rejection or failure. You're set free to love others as God loves you. Let's look at this C.S. Lewis quote as we're closing together. I love this. Just go to that C.S. Lewis quote if you could in the slides. This is what C.S. Lewis says. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. Remember how we started this message. How you think about God's the most important thing about you. C.S. Lewis is responding to that idea. Look what he says. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him How we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us it is written that we shall stand before him shall appear shall be inspected the promise of glory is the promise almost incredible hard to believe and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall shall find approval, shall please God, to to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God. Not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is you want me to tell you what's more important than your right thoughts about God it's God's thoughts about you and today he's not pushing you away he's drawing you near the source of grace and mercy love, life itself he's not demanding that you see him rightly before he comes today he's running towards you He's coming to you. He wants to explode His grace and His mercy into your situation in a way that is undeniable. Stand on your feet all around this room. church I I care deeply about the Great Commission but before we start about before we start talking about the Great Commission I want you to be convinced about the why behind the Great Commission